Welcome to Words and Pictures, the show about the narrative arts. I'm your host, S.W. Conser, and today I'm joined by a comics writer, novelist, and media producer. His projects include The Dragon Quest, Welcome to Grizzlydale, and Season of the Bruja. Aaron Duran, welcome to Words and Pictures. Hi, thanks for having me on. It's going to be a lot of fun today. Yeah, so Aaron, let's talk about Season of the Bruja. This uh, grew out of a self-published comic called La Brujeria. Yeah, La Brujeria. Um, it, yeah, it was kind of inspired by that. Season of the Bruja is the version I kind of always wanted to tell. With my previous self-published stuff, I, uh, I'm i just too dang wordy. It felt like it was written by someone that wasn't quite ready to write comics yet, like hadn't learned enough of the discipline of the art of writing a comic book script as a collaborative form of storytelling. How long ago was this? Oh, we're going on almost 11 years since that first happened. And uh, do you do a little sketching yourself? Do you uh, do some thumbnails? Uh, do you share those with the artists that you hire? No, I mean, I will give them very vague, like stick figures. But uh, any of my attempts to draw are just incredibly frustrating because my hand cannot recreate what my brain sees in its head. Also, I like the idea of giving the artist more control of the storytelling because it's, you know, comics are a visual medium. So I will always trust the artist to have a much better eye when it comes to, you know, panel design and layout. In fact, I tell every artist I ever work with, and it goes the same with, with Sarah over in Barcelona. On every script, I tell her, like, look, if this panel or page doesn't make sense, like, feel free to change it, you know, and run it past me saying, could we move this line of dialogue to this page now because you didn't give me enough room or, hey, I've got an idea for a bigger image. So do you mind if we play with the panels a bit? And 90% of the time, they're right. It's pretty rare when I'm like, mm, this has to be kind of solid on this one page here. But that's it's a rare instance. Like it never once happened on Season of the Bruja. Every idea Sarah brought was completely correct in every way. Yeah. Now, you mentioned Sarah Soler. She's the mm -hmm. artist on this project. For somebody kind of on the young side, on the new side in comics, she <laughs> has quite the resume. Oh, she is a powerhouse. Uh, yeah, so she lives in Spain. She's done some work for Dark Horse. Her own self-published book called Us, um, about her and her partner and what they've gone through. Um, not my place to tell that story, but I highly recommend when Us comes out in the United States, pick up a copy. It's a beautiful book. But yeah, she's amazing. She's fast, which is pretty cool. And yeah, you mentioned age. I think the one thing that I find that I really like about that is that comics hasn't <laughs> hasn't grinded down yet? Because <laughs> I'll be like, "Oh, you sweet summer child," uh, but that's also <laughs> some of my own cynicism coming through. And also, I think that also happens to a lot of comic book creators that do not create comics in the United States. It's easier to make comics when you know you have socialized healthcare and you don't have to worry about certain things. That makes being a comic book writer artist a lot easier. And in my experience, the comics medium is respected more in Europe. It's treated like literature as opposed to here. We're making great strides. I still feel like comics are looked at as a disposable form of, of entertainment or, or, or pastime reading. And on the worst scale, still just for kids, which they're clearly not. Well, Spain has a tradition of 
having amazing colors in their comics. This is, mm-hmm. you know, something that spills over from their aesthetic tradition of painting architecture. They're just so precise with colors. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and Sarah is that way in Season of the Bruja. I think the only kind of rule we've had is that Althalia's powers, when they manifest, are generally like hues of green, so like shades of jade. And bad guys and demons, it's it's red. So let's talk and about... And I just realized I did the Star Wars thing. Now I feel like a nerd. Jedi, <laughs> green, Sith, red. He says with the Klingon poster behind him. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I, I was I was going to bring that up, but first I want to talk about Altalia Cabrera and mm-hmm. her abuela Isadora. This is <laughs> this book is kind of a hero's journey that begins with a mentor acolyte relationship. Yeah, very much so. As this as the book kind of hints at, Isadora believes that much like herself, Althalia will one day be one of the last Bruja to carry on the tradition of pre-colonization magic within Mexico. And yeah, but Isadora, her abuela, is trying to teach her, but like all younger people, like Athelia is in a hurry. She wants to run before she can walk kind of thing. Isadora is all about trying to get her to slow down and understand that they're not just powers you can fling about willy-nilly, like they come with a price. They come from a source that is not always sunshine and roses. And if you're not careful, it can take a bad turn. So yeah, there's very much that mentor relationship. And there's also just the passing down of family traditions uh, that just I draw from my own my own background and experience. And a lot of the scenes between Isadora and Adelia are, are re- reflecting of that, for sure. Well, you brought up Star Wars first. So <laughs> I think some readers could be forgiven for seeing some Empire Strikes Back parallels at the start of the story, the shamanic training cut short? Uh, there could be some of that, sure. I mean, I you know, I'm a, I'm a child of that era of, you know, the original trilogy. I was a, you know, kid watching it on VHS. I, well, I'm not quite old enough to have seen them in the theater. I saw them on VHS. And yeah, I guess it's kind of hard to avoid. There is a maybe, you know, Obi-Wan to Luke or Yoda to Luke elements to it. But also, if you were to ever see the script, I'm very specific in mentioning like this is not like Star Wars in that I didn't want it to be a teacher, student, you know, master apprentice vibe. I really wanted it to be grandmother to to granddaughter. Um, It's as much as teaching family and ancestral traditions as it is understanding where her powers come from and what can they do. And in fact, that's kind of Isidore's way of teaching her that is through stories of, you know, their ancestors past and like recipes and taking your time when you're cooking. There is a line I can give away that's in the book where Althalia talks about she has their own version of an Instapot and she can make, you know, home-cooked beans in an hour. She's like, but Ibuela never liked him because you didn't stand over a pot and let it simmer for six, seven hours. So it was never, I was always looking for the shortcut. And that's some of the themes that Althalia has to deal with in the book is what happens when you keep trying to take the shortcut. Right. You mentioned your own family uh, Mm -hmm. being inspired by some of the stories you heard from your grandmother when you were very young. Mm -hmm. And so are some of these mythological creatures that you bring into the story, are these uh, taken from indigenous Mexican traditions? Um, Yeah, some of them are. Yeah, I think, in fact, a lot of them 
are. I did a lot of research of trying to find about some of the mythologies and beliefs during the era of the the Aztecs and, you know, their gods and some of their mythological monsters that roamed the cenotes and the jungles around around their cities. So a lot of that comes from there. Um, what's funny is that my abuelo is very religious, very Catholic. <laughs> um, so she never talked about any of those things. But yet, in in all of the practices that she does, she couldn't help it. I think because of family tradition, she would work in things that would be considered superstitious or even you know magical. So like the cracked egg under your bed when you're sick to absorb the sickness. She would tell stories about when she was a kid and swearing she saw like their version of the deer woman kind of thing. So then years later, when I'm writing horror stories, she's like, Mio, where do all these like dark stories come from? Where it's <laughs> like, I don't know, maybe because sometimes when you tuck me in at night, you'd like make sure to tuck my feet under because she'd be like, that way El Kukui won't nibble on your toes. I'm like, ah, where do you? She's like, I never said that. I'm like, all right, okay. You did, but all right. I can, and my sister will pack me up. She'd be like, yeah, you did. You told him to me too. <laughs> well, before we dive too much into the themes of the book, I wanted to have you talk about some of the characters. Altalia's uh, teammates are yeah. uh, shapeshifters. Uh, the term furry comes up at least once. Uh, does it? Oh, I think she so. calls him fuzzy. She's going all fuzzy. I think is that I could have written furry. I don't know. It doesn't really matter. Yeah, so the, they all work in this um, like weird oddities museum that I placed in Old Town in downtown Portland. Yeah, so she works with a very dapper man that can shapeshift and then a slightly aggressive woman who does shapeshift into a were coyote. And you have a sort of twist on the classic witch's familiar. There's a character called uh, Laquita. Uh, yeah. spoken would be, I guess, the the translation. <laughs> and that's sort of a uh, a kitty cat sometimes and uh, very rarely a jaguar with wings. Uh, yeah, the jaguar thing is uh, that's in the middle. That's kind of in the, the spoiler territory. And that's also um, those creatures are that's 100% Sarah. In the script, I just said, like, you know, Athelia comes home and her cat's waiting for her because she's, you know, like a cat. I'm hungry because I just thought, all right, I'm just going to give her a cat. That'll be cool. You know, Isidore and Athelia have a black cat. That's what I'm going to do. And she came up with the idea of taking some of the Mexican folk art monsters that you see that are usually crosses of like, yeah, a cat with wings or, you know, a frog with wings or something like that. And she pitched those back to me. And they did start to take on more of like your classic magical familiar properties. So Athelia has Loquita, her winged cat, and Isadora has Gordo, her very fat winged frog. Now, this interests me because uh, Sarah, your artist, is mm -hmm. not from the Americas uh, like no. your family. She's more Castilian. Yeah, uh, she's from Spain. Yep. And so it interests me that she's the one diving into all of this imagery uh, that goes back to the pre-colonial roots. Um, part of that is that she has a massive love for Mexican art and culture and architecture, which I didn't find out until a little while into our working together. Like the script had all these notes and I was going to start providing her with examples and she just went off. She's like, no, I love it. I, 
have studied this for a long time. I'm so excited to get to draw this stuff. And also part of it was me wanting not trying not to be super heavy handed. And then with Sarek's suggestion and also with my editor, uh, editor uh, Shauna, they're both like, why are you not leaning into it? Why are you trying to hedge your bets on not just leading into that? If that's where the story's coming from, go for it. So that's where a lot of that came from. I do remember in our earliest stages, I think when I, she got the script for what would then become issue one, one of the pages has like a two paragraph, almost an apology that I write to her saying, you know, Sarah, I hope you don't take a lot of this script personal, but like the Spaniards are still the bad guys. Uh, and they're very bad. Not, I'm not saying all Spaniards. The, the villains in this are old school Spaniards, kind of Catholic conquering types. I said, so don't take offense, but like, they're the bad guys. They do not come off well in this in this story. And I'll never forget, she wrote back and she says, no, no, I'm cool with it. We've had this coming for a long time. <laughs> so. Have you heard from the Vatican yet about your portrayals of Catholic No, clergy? but I'll. I'll send one in. I'll send them one. See what happens. <laughs> yeah, you're definitely poking the bear with some of your villains in the a in little the bit. And I, I hope people will start to see that I'm not like attacking the church as a whole. And as the story progresses, you will learn more about these two characters. Yeah, the church is not going to be a big fan of them either in the long run. So, yeah, the villains have a secret hideaway. At is that the grotto, the Portland it sure Shrine? Is. I Mary? did that on Persis. So I love going to the grotto, actually. I love going to just that main spot or going up that kind of creepy elevator and then walking walking the path up there. I think it's beautiful. It's very calming. But I can't, you know, again, like I'm a child of a certain era where like villains have secret lairs. And every time I see the grotto, I'm like, man, it would be cool if you pulled like the third prayer candle from the right on the third shelf and like the grotto swings open and leads down to this weird mix of like old Catholic reliquaries and high tech. So that, yeah, that was just me finally getting to fulfill a dream of putting a, putting a, putting a villain's lair inside the grotto. There's no disrespect meant to the grotto. I actually quite like it there. I find it very calming. Well, I want to talk a little bit about the story without giving too much away, without any spoilers. Uh, one of the themes you explore is the uh, plunder of cultural artifacts. Yeah, that was weighing really heavily on me when I was writing the script. You know, this script primarily got written at the height of like the 2020 protests and this kind of cultural awakening. So I was really kind of feeling that. And, you know, and I just had rewatched Black Panther, which I love. And there's that whole scene where Killmonger is like, no, I'm just, these things are back. You stole them from these lands in Africa. They're not property of the British Museum. They're property of this tribe or that tribe. And I was kind of feeling that too. Uh, so much that at a time I was like, what if I pitch like a reverse Indiana Jones where these people break into museums to bring them back to where they go? But that's that's a whole other thing. So yeah, that was just something that I was definitely feeling. Well, you say that the story originally had a darker edge. Um, I mean, Sarah brought in all of her beautiful saturated colors, but uh, mm -hmm. you were planning a story that that went a little bit darker. Still, a you know, an all ages, yeah, story, but was uh, you know going to be dark. Yeah, I and mean, that's just my natural inclination is to make stories a little bit darker because that's just what I like. Um, 
I sometimes think we don't give younger readers enough credit. They can handle a lot more than I think, yeah, that people want to let them have. Um, I remember reading stuff that maybe it was a little old for me when I was a kid and kind of liking the idea of being scared as I turned the page. Because in the end, you still knew it was just a book. It was just a comic, um, even though there probably were things under my bed. And I still believe that. Hence why I jump out of bed quickly because El Kukui's there. But yeah, once I saw her art come through, because I had a very distinct style in my head that I saw for the art. And I'll be honest, it wasn't Sarah's when when it was pitched to me. I loved her work, but I was like, I don't know. And then she just drew some character designs. And I was like, nope, she's it. Uh, if she's got her art's going to make me lighten the tone a little bit, that's fine. She's the one. So, yeah, definitely. Her art definitely lightened up the story, which I think makes the scenes that are dark hit even harder. So, yeah, I'm really happy about that. Half the time, Sarah and I were just Instagramming, messaging each other, like different cool Aztec imagery. You know, as the story progresses, you'll see hummingbirds begin to kind of work their way in and hummingbird skulls um that's because in in some aztec lore uh, hummingbirds are reincarnated warriors and they have a very special place in that in that culture so i was like this is pretty cool and she's like do you mind if i work that in like nah do it go for it yeah if anybody's watched <laughs> hummingbirds at the feeder they are ferocious yes they are yeah they're yeah they can go at it yeah well let me reintroduce you uh you're listening <laughs> You're listening to Words and Pictures. I'm your host, S.W. Conser, and we're talking today with comics writer, novelist, and media producer, Aaron Duran. His most recent project is the graphic novel, Season of the Bruja, with artist Sarah Solaire. Hello. So, Aaron, mm -hmm. let's talk about the media producer part. You are still a big <laughs> part of Geek in the City Radio. Yep. Yeah, one of the country's longest running podcasts i think the only person who's had one longer than me is maybe mark Marin. i know i beat kevin smith by like eight months and the smodcast empire for better or worse we've kind of always kept it local not a lot of big dreams of making it like a huge national show because one of the goals of geek in the city radio was always to highlight local creators um that maybe you know other media outlets just miss or they're brand new kind of thing. So I, we always like to help that out. But yeah, I've been producing and co-hosting that for a little, it'll be almost 18 years come April. Well, let's see. Also performing long-term hosting duties on Geek in the City are uh, Cable Hashitani and Denise mm -hmm. Espinosa, um, yeah. big promoters of culture for many, many years in Portland. Yeah, no, that's one of the ways that our show has also shifted a lot as we do the intersection of of social culture and, and pop media to show kind of the highlight, both of those. Yeah. The other thing we like to joke about is we're the only Portland podcast that isn't, <laughs> that is not a hundred percent white. So no digs on people, but we noticed that a few years ago, we're like, huh? So that's always a funny thing to bring up. <laughs> well, you're also a regular on the late lamented radio show hosted by court Weber and Bobby Roberts, better known yeah. as court and fat boy. Yep. Yeah, I did that for a long time as their comic reviewer. Same thing. I used to be on the Rick Emerson show. That's kind of where Geek in the City got its start. I would just send in annoying emails correcting him, but I was never nasty about it. And it was very uh, self-deprecating as I wrote them. And that just kind of built up. So that was always a lot of fun. And then I ran the very short-lived but incredibly ambitious CBS radio theater 
back when there was CBS radio in Portland. Wow. And that was our live radio dramas. I did a zombie one and I did a pulp superhero one. All live. The only thing that was ever pre-recorded were gunshots. Everything else was live. Fire. We went like old school Mercury Theater. So yeah, that was a lot of fun. It was very intensive. I was essentially writing two 30-page scripts every week. I don't know how long we would have been able to sustain it, but it was a lot of fun. And uh, to completely polish your nerd cred, <laughs> you organized a failed effort in 2008 to rename one of Portland's streets, uh, 42nd Avenue to yep. Douglas Adams Boulevard. That's, that's, a, that's right. a bit of an in-joke there. Yeah, no, it is. Uh, it was funny. It built up a lot of steam. We had some support from local businesses. We were able to raise a decent amount of money. When it fell through, I donated it all to the White Rhino Fund. That was one of Douglas Adams' favorite charities. It very likely would have happened if it wasn't um, derailed by a certain mayor's assistant that just had to step down again. And I feel like if I go into more litigious territory, even though I will state only facts of what happened during that whole event. But yes, there were rules that I had to follow and rules that either they didn't know they had to follow or didn't care. Oh, but there's a reason why we have Cesar Chavez Avenue and not Douglas Adams Boulevard. Not that I begin Cesar Chavez. That I and I that street name's great. I love it. But just well, saying, there were rules that were ignored. I'm gonna buy you a beer sometime and find out more. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so yeah, let's. I just want to ask you about some of your other written works, your novels. You've got a uh, a series, uh, The Forgotten Tears. Uh, mm -hmm. Welcome to Grizzlydale is the first of the bunch. Yep. Yeah, that was. Um, I never thought I would write a novel and my partner just said like why not like i don't know i never had a desire to and then they said hey, well she said you know give it a shot and i just cranked out that first grizzlydale novel i think in 90 days the first draft was done and it's a late middle reader early ya rural horror series that i base a lot of it on the area that i grew up in because as much as I'm not a big fan of my hometown, that it had some weird stuff you couldn't explain. So I was like, let's just amplify that. So you and your folks were all born in the States. Your grandmother was from Mexico, but you would try... I think there's never any hard proof one way or another. So it's one of those things. But uh, you would try to speak Spanish and uh, would get rebuffed. Yeah, that's a... I mean, rebuffed is maybe a little harsh way to put it. Neither my mom or my abuela made teaching me Spanish that big of a deal. And my sister. And I have whole thoughts as to why. Um, when my mom was very young, uh, English was not her first language because she when you're a kid in a you know, Mexican household, everyone speaks Spanish, especially in the 50s. And as I remember the few times she opened up about it, she'd come home, you know, crying because she was being teased in like kindergarten and first grade because the English she did know sounded really weird you know, because of her, an accent. And like, I'm not going to psychoanalyze my mom, but my sister and I sometimes both think maybe that's why it was, no, I want my kids to be 100% assimilated. So no one, they're going to get teased anyway, but that's one less thing for them to worry about. The bummer being is that when you then go to visit your family who do speaks are all, you know, perfectly bilingual, they just assume you are too. And when you have to tell them that you don't understand almost anything they're saying, you always get that look of like, it's 
surprise and then a hint of pity and then they switch to english and i'm sure people that come from a different cultures where their bilingual is is considered a given but they're not i know that's a feeling that is shared by all of them like i have a greek friend who you know she doesn't speak very much greek but her nana does and it's like it's just a bummer or when i go to like a taco cart and my spanish has gotten a lot better but there are still times i will have to ask them in english again and i don't get any judgment from them but i i judge myself inside and which is why like in season of bruja Altelia deals with the same thing she's even got a line where she's like god my spanish sucks so yeah that's something that i i i struggle with and i think a lot of mixed race or mixed culture kids go through the same thing and then in the book, in Season of the Bruja, Altelia is reminded that her ancestors, their language was not originally Spanish. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's one of my favorite lines is when Isadora tells her that, like reminds her like, your ancestors didn't speak Spanish either. That's probably one of my favorite lines in that book is that scene, for sure. And as much as your mom tried to protect you, <laughs> you still had awkward incidents at school. You brought weird... Lunch I brought weird I, I brought weird leftovers that yeah once they got over it and I made friends that would try it then they couldn't get enough of it but I'm the kid who's trading like homemade tacos or tamales for like you know a twinkie because <laughs> that stuff wasn't allowed in our house and so I would want a twinkie or I would want a like bologna sandwich that wasn't wrapped in a tortilla now the only way I like bologna is when it's grilled on fire and just rolled in a tortilla and everyone who knows what that is is probably going, mm, yeah. <laughs> it's literally, you take a slab of bologna, especially if you have a gas range and you throw it on just right on the steel and it gets kind of crispy and it does that curl up and it turns into like a big pepperoni slice that bubbles up. <laughs> you get the black edges and the grill marks. And the same thing with a tortilla, you throw it on the comal and just, you know, gets puffy and just wrap them both up and then eat them. It's one. I'll do the same thing with hot dogs too. It's delicious. I know a lot of like third and fourth gen Mexican-Americans are like, oh, yeah, no, that's the stuff. <laughs> so, Aaron, what's uh, what's next on your plate? Um, So I've got a few more projects going. I'm in that stage again where I can't announce anything. Um, but I have another comic project in the works that's going to be a lot of fun. It's still going to have some supernatural stuff, but it's going to be just like bonkers and probably hyper violent this one won't be for kids yeah i'm always working on something i'm working on another novel because i promised one day i would finish that third grizzly dale book and we're going on five years now and i ended number two on a cliffhanger so i apologize to everyone so on the young adult novel front you're not a dad are you an uncle uh do you have friends with kids that you, i am uh... an uncle okay yeah. so you do you workshop some of your stories with the kids nah no I've only got one niece and I think she just turned nine. And in fact, when I talked to her around Christmas, she demanded I write. She's hit the age where she's reading, quote, chapter books. And she demanded that I write her another book. She's like, I'll go ahead, write me a book. I was like, well, I'll uh, write it. So I'm going to write her a book. I don't know what it's going to be about yet, but I'll write her a book. But Good yeah, man. I'm I'm the I'm everyone's uncle kind of thing. All right. You've been listening to Words and Pictures. I'm your host, S.W. Concer. 
And we've been talking today with comics writer, novelist, and media producer, Aaron Duran. Aaron, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks a lot. And hopefully uh, see everybody on Saturday the 28th from 3 to 5 at Books with Pictures. I'll be there signing copies of Season of the Bruja. Well, and for those listeners who might be interested in finding out more about your work, where would they look? Um, for the show, you go to geekinthecity.com. For all my other work, you just go to aaronduranwrites.com. <laughs> W-R-I-T-E-S. Yeah. Well, thanks to all our listeners on the radio dial and on the web. You can find an archived version of this show later today at kboo.fm slash wordsandpictures. And be sure to follow us on social media at wordsandpictures.